Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about raising the happiness bar and forging financial freedom for the world's workers in today's economy. This episode is part of the Positive Business Conference Series recorded at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business, where industry leaders gather to promote greater well-being and performance through connection with self, others, and Society for the Greater Global Good. To learn more about the Positive Business Conference at Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, please visit www.positivebusinessconference.com. My first guest today is Sue Ashford. Let's join that conversation. My guest today is Sue Ashford. She is the Michael and Susan Jander Noah Professor of Management and Organization and current Chair of the Management and Organizations Department. Sue researches and writes on how to be more effective in organizations, whether that is being more proactive, acting more as a leader, or selling your ideas and issues. She also has spent the last decade researching those who work outside the organization on their own as independent or gig workers, creating a happy work life. And the talk that you're giving here at PBC is Thriving in the New World of Work. And I am so eager to talk with you about this because we have a virtual team. Harvesting Happiness mm -hmm. is made up of people from all around the world that work on our stuff over here, That's on all great. things H, we, we call it. And it's a gig economy. More and more businesses and work is being done in this style. And it has benefits and it has some challenges. Exactly. Talk a little bit about both. So the title of our the academic paper we wrote is Agony and the Ecstasy in the Gig Economy because it has both. It has some challenges that are difficult and some things people love. Um, do you want me to just keep going talking yeah. about well, that? I, I think that in my view, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the gig economy really took flight with the last recession. In 2008, 2009, when people were being laid off and they needed to find a way to take care of their families. Yeah, that, that is one trend. I mean, it's interesting because in some, some jobs have been done this way always throughout history. You know, novelists work in a gig economy way. Painters work in a gig economy way. But yeah, it's certainly uh, taken off. For example, when we started this research, no one called it the gig economy. So that's a new label to capture this kind of, of, of working, way of working. And in addition to the recession laid off, needed to go there, a lot of people are just starting to go there by choice. They don't like the tight control systems in organizations, the 
the drudgery, the politics, and they make a choice to try to create a better life. The other trend we're seeing is that millennials are really attracted to this kind of work. They look at their parents and say, I don't really want that lifestyle. Then they get their first jobs. And like many of their parents, they say, I don't really like working like this, but they have a way of doing it differently. So technological changes have really made a difference here. So now, you know, I may have started in an organization or people my age and said, oh, this is drudgery. They didn't really have any choice. Now they can do work from home. They can do start some sort of creative enterprise and support themselves, and so they are. Do meaningful work. I think we need yes. to really qualify that, that people are doing really creative, neat things from their homes or from their backpacks. You know, there are lots of suitcase entrepreneurs, you know, that are digital nomads who are traveling and running businesses from their laptops. And I think that's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing and super exciting. When you talk to them, the creative energy they have is just astounding. And that's really the ecstasy part. Yes. You get to decide, you get to do it, you get to put yourself into the work where sometimes in organizations you don't get to do that. Your The work is pretty defined and you know, you just kind of do the thing you do, but here they get to make it their own. Um, and that's the good part, you know, which is it's personal. It's personal to me. I have freedom. <coughs> and most of the people we talk to say that in the studies we've done, say they would never go back to a regular job in a regular organization. And many gig economy workers serve larger corporations. Yes. The companies are actually hiring these kinds of workers because they can expand and contract with need. Correct. That's the other trend that kind of made this sort of happen on a much larger scale is companies are looking for any way they can to cut costs. And, you know, this is the part where it's not a totally happy story at a societal level that this is happening because, you know, these people are not given any benefits they're struggling to find health care. Uh, they have no pension. You know, so all that is happening as well. And that isn't all pretty. No. Some people feel that we've created a situation of exploitation. But I don't study that. We have a lot of labor economists who study that and sociologists. I literally want to get inside the heads of these people and really learn what it feels like to work in this manner. I was just talking to the moderator at the conference who now works in this manner as an independent consultant. And he said, I didn't have any eye view into what it's like, you know, because I've worked in companies all my life and now I've made this this shift. And, you know, it would have helped me to know more about what does it feel like? What is it? What's the day to day experience like of working in that way? As somebody who does it myself with the work that I do, because mm-hmm. I'm a consultant mm-hmm. as well, I, mean, I find it very liberating. I work when I want to work. I don't work when I don't want to work. And the, the downside, of course, is, well, there may not always be work. You mm-hmm. may hit a patch where there's not a lot going on. But my soul is my own. And that's probably what you hear from a lot of people. Yes, that's what, that again, we're, we're definitely on the <laughs> ecstasy side. And that is what people like, you know, that it feels creative. It feels... You know, that sense of ownership you have and the flexibility and freedom you have. It's interesting, some scholars early in this whole movement, back in the early O's, did research on contractors to organizations. They said this freedom thing is really a myth. These people aren't free at all. They're so driven by getting that next contract 
that they're afraid to take vacation days, they're afraid to have any time off, that in fact they're, they're running a rat race that's at a higher level than most people in companies because they don't have any buffer. We didn't find that in our research. The people we, we studied, we interviewed people that work independently on their own, but they range from independent analysts, executive coaches, consultants, all the way to novelists, painter, artists, painters, sculptors, graphic designers. And most of the people, we didn't get that sense of rat race, of worrying so much. There was a financial precariousness, but it, it didn't seem to totally drive everything they did. They were calmer about it than that previous research had found. Well, I would also think that if you have a dual income household mm -hmm. and maybe one person is in the corporate environment and one person is not, or both work from home in the gig economy, that by the pooling of resources, you have sure. some level of stability. Yeah. But going back to the millennials, mm -hmm. I'm really eager to talk with you about this. I work with a lot of young adults and I find that a lot of them say, I don't know what to do. You know, mm -hmm. you know, I have education or maybe they maybe they don't have a college education. Mm -hmm. Maybe they've been to trade school or to some mm -hmm. other certification kind of program. But the idea that they would be doing one job for their lives is of no interest to them. Yeah, it's really been a shift, hasn't it's it? It's really been a shift, yeah. That mm -hmm. they're fearful of complacency. Mm -hmm. They're fearful of not finding happiness mm -hmm. and having a sense of purpose, which I think is really a lot of what's going on at this conference. Mm -hmm. You know, the Positive mm -hmm. Business Conference is focusing a lot on this passion and purpose right. to our lives through our work and being a maker, mm -hmm. and that each one of us is a maker mm -hmm. on some level. And I think the gig economy really speaks to that. Right. And that ideal of that's expressed in that word maker is very attractive to this generation. Yes. You know, that I, I am control and I am a creative self. And we see that in the people we interviewed in the, in the studies we've done. And money is not the driving force. Well, they want to make money. They want to make they money. They need to make money. What they don't want to do is get, they don't yet, I would say yet, I don't know if it'll change. They don't yet feel the drive for the lifestyle that their parents had necessarily. Buying a house, buying two cars, you know, putting the kids in swim clubs and private schools. But our studies of people across the age, but these young people that express these things, they don't have kids yet. Right. They're not married yet. They're, you know, so things can change as well. And they will. That's but a guarantee. I, but I like that they're explorative. You know, yeah. they're not saying, I, I, these are, this is the pattern that I need to follow in order to be successful. And society is also loosening up a bit, you know, of what it, you know, we no longer think, oh, failure to launch if you don't have, you know, an investment banker job or some kind of banking job. We think, you know, the kids exploring something, some different pattern, different way of being with work. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Sue Ashford. To learn more about her work, please visit the University of Michigan, and you can just search for Sue Ashford, because if I give you the website, it will be very long and you will forget about it. So it's Sue Ashford at the University of Michigan. On LinkedIn, you may find her at Sue-Ashford. We'll be right back, and we'll continue the conversation with Sue Ashford about thriving in the new world of work. Before we head out to the break, let's talk about feeling good. Do you ever experience stress, anxiety, sleeplessness, or chronic pain? Many of us do, including yours truly. 
Everyone knows that stress cases are not fun nor happy. And that's why I love Feels, premium CBD delivered directly to your doorstep. At times, I run anxious and have trouble sleeping. My research led me to Feels, which is effective and non-addicting. There's never a hangover or high from these CBD products. Feels is consciously made in the U.S. and easy to take. Just place a few drops under your tongue and feel the difference within minutes. Feels works naturally to help you feel better. I use Feels before bed when I most need support in settling down for peaceful sleep. Many folks are curious about CBD products but don't know where to go or how to learn about the health benefits. Feels offers real live human support with a free CBD hotline and text message service to help educate and guide your personal experience. Join me in the Feels community and get Feels delivered right to your door. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel at any time. Feels helps me feel my very best every day and it can help you too. You deserve to start feeling better. Your mind and body will thank you. Listeners will receive 50% off your first order and free shipping. Visit feels.com slash HH to become a member and automatically save 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash HH feels.com slash HH. Now here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a guarantee. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to the show. We are talking about raising the happiness bar and forging financial freedom for the world's workers in today's economy. Let's return to the conversation with Sue Ashford, recorded at the Positive Business Conference at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business. We're talking about the gig economy and the research that she has done for the last 10 years on this gig economy demographic. So Sue, tell us what it feels like to be a gig economy worker? Yeah, I think we covered one in the last segment, which is this sense of precariousness. But we talked mostly about financial precariousness. Another element is identity precariousness. Who am I? Like that's, if you work in a company, that helps answer that question. But if you work in the gig economy and you maybe do different things for different organizations, or you have work this month, but nothing next month. Are you still that thing you're saying you are? And when you go home and talk about it over the Thanksgiving table and nobody understands what you're doing. What this gig thing is. What it is. Are you a musician? (laughs) And why you're doing it. And is it just failure to launch or what? And that gives people a sense of identity precariousness. Who really am I as a worker? that people in organizations don't need to struggle with. So that precariousness and then the personalization, which is their greatest source of joy, they get to put themselves into the work, but it also is a source of stress and ego injury because you don't have anyone else to blame if it goes wrong. You put yourself into the work and it's not succeeding, that's like a failure of you, not a failure of some higher up who told you to go in that direction. So it's personal, which has both this good and bad element. Well, in terms of development of character, 
I would think that this is a really good thing because when we're talking about emotional and social intelligence and having ownership and responsibility for our lives, what a fabulous way to learn it early on. I mean, yeah, yes, it is. I mean, and some of the people were in that stage, but we have some people in our sample who are 60, you know, and they've been working this way for 20 years. We're really interested in those people because they learn some strategies to make it work and not everybody knows these strategies. And so what I try to do in my teaching now is talk to young people and say, if you want to go in this direction, that's great. Here's some things you should know from people who've been at it for a long time. And let's talk about these elements because there are four connections that you speak about that really are important to pay attention to and practice in order to, I think, live a holistic experience. We say it's a vital life, a life that feels has yes. some vitality yes. to it. And yes, through the, the study, we came up with these four connections that seemed to differentiate those who felt like their their whole self was in the work and it felt vital and ones that felt less of that. So the first is a connection to other people, figuring out some ways to deal with the aloneness of this work. Because if you're sitting there in your studio apartment or your very nice house, if you're farther along in your career, all alone every day, after a while that starts to become problematic. So sometimes people need other people for reassurance, you know, just sort of a, you're going in the right direction, keep going, you can do it. And other times the other people serve the function of emboldening them, inviting them to be more daring, inviting them to to really go for a bigger thing. And when you're on your own, those kinds of comments and affirmation that really helps people. Um, Another person also serves as a deadline. I have to talk to my agent, editor, fellow coach, you know, next week. So I've got to get my act together. The accountability partnership. Exactly. Yes. That's very effective. Yes. My own experience. (laughs) Yes. But, you know, launching the experiment, you talk about, that's what Rich Sheridan and Manlo Innovation says, right? You know, that you have an idea for something new and not to limit yourself in the greatness, but go launch the experiment. Go, go try set. it out. Go right. try it mm-hmm. out. And sometimes we need that support and encouragement exactly. to do so. And if we're alone in our sweats, in our house, we're maybe less apt to do yeah, that. Yeah, and we can do it often. Yes. But not always. And that's where the other people come in. I mean, the people that go into this kind of work are pretty good self-managers because that's the only management there is going to be. And um, But... But everybody has needs. Everybody is human. So this is just a human need. The second one is connection to place. So the people we talked to, the gig workers, they didn't go to an office. They didn't go to a joint studio if they were artists. And most of them didn't go to co-working spaces. And I think it's because that hadn't really caught on as a thing until very recently. But they were very thoughtful about how they set up wherever it was they did their work. An artist said, you know, when I come into my studio, it tells me who I am, what I'm doing, what I'm trying to say. And so if your identity feels precarious, you set up your space to reinforce, I am a high-powered strategy consultant. I am a, a painter hoping to make a difference to the next generation. And so space really mattered to people. Interesting. I'm very partial to my own space. Of course, everybody is. But the idea of really having that sort of established 
work environment, even if you're fluid and mobile? Even yes. I mean, some people, they went to many spaces. But, yeah. you know, but the people that had a space talked about it. In, in my presentation, I talked about this software engineer who described the work world he was going out into almost like a war. It's like I go and I compete for <laughs> clients and I get the best negotiated deal and I do these things. And then when he described where, we said, well, where do you do most of your work? And he said, do it in my office at home. My office looks like the cockpit of a fighter jet plane. And I just love wow. this guy who had to go out and be so macho. And he's got this macho kind of office that you could see kind of bolstered him up to go do that thing. He's got Command Central yes, happening. Command Central. Happening at home. Let's talk a little bit about those co-working spaces because this is not everybody may know about this. And these mm -hmm. are wonderful ways to work and commune with others. And you have a few in Ann Arbor, I've noticed. Yes, we do. So co-working spaces sort of solves a little bit this problem of place or the place where I do my work and people. Right, So you go and you rent by the month a desk or an office, and there are other people there. And then the people who run the co-working space, in many cases, do things to create sort of a work culture within that co-working space. The most prominent is WeWork, which has be, you know, become very big yes. nationwide. We're starting to see a reaction to WeWork, which is little co-working spaces, kind of a little more under the radar, but they're decidedly not corporate. And WeWork feels more corporate. Yes. Um, and these are more like one in Detroit is called Bamboo something, you know, and, you know, it's a, a space where the owners are, you know, it's their only co-working space. They're not open to franchise nationwide, and they really try to create a connection with the people who work there and create connections among them. So it has a different vibe. So there are probably social events. Maybe there is exercise that's going on there. Um, I know that at some of the WeWork facilities, I was at one in New York City, for a very large corporation actually had mm -hmm. space there. Yes. And they just liked it. They liked this the social aspect. They would like a restaurant, bar, there yeah. was full meal service. It was yes. quite... Quite high end. Quite high end, yeah. yes. Yes, so that's happening. The third thing our people did was they created connections to routines. In other words, they, they had two different functions. One is, one man said, I get up in the morning, I shave, I pray, I get coffee, and I go to work. It just happens to be in my basement. But I go through those steps every morning. I don't work in my jammies. I dress, not corporate, corporate, but I dress you know, up to go to work. And I go to work. And that tells me I'm no longer in my home space. I'm in my workspace. Other people talked about things they did at the end of the day to now be off duty and in their home space. And then the third routine is like when you hit that stressful, dark spot, what is people talked about routines they could use to get going again. Motivation. Motivation. Jump start. Yeah. Because the day-to-day -day experience for these people is very fixated on productivity. How do I stay productive, get productive, stay productive, get back to being productive at my real work? You know, because people can get drawn off into the admin work that supports because they have to do the marketing and billing and collecting as well as yes. the creating. But those can be, you know, easier. So you get drawn off doing those instead of doing the creating, which is more stressful. 
And that was tied to heightened emotions. I mean, the people we talk to describe more emotions than people in organizations typically do. So more highs, more lows, and more oscillation between the two. And a lot of it was tied to productivity. If I'm having a good productive week, I feel really great. If I'm having a, I'm not able to get myself working, I'm, I'm procrastinating or I'm just doing admin, then I feel terrible, mm. then it's harder to work. So it's this, these four connections kind of help with that. So if you are, have a routine that you follow, you do that every morning and before you know it, you're working without even thinking about it because yeah. you just followed your routine. Well, and structure is our friend. I mean, just as human beings, we really need it. We need to have some order to our lives because the order keeps us focused. It keeps us in forward momentum. And that's regardless of what space we're working in. Exactly. My favorite very short quote from one of our writers was, routines are the wardens of accomplishment. So, you know, by having a routine... You know, it's like a prison warden. It makes you accomplish what yeah. you really want to accomplish. And, I mean, the same organizational skills apply when one is working in the gig economy or working as a consultant on one's own, right? You can or make- at a company. Yeah. I mean, in the audience today, I said, how many work as gig workers? And it was a very small percentage because these are more organizational people. Then I said, well, how many have some part of your work where you have more autonomy, more freedom, to decide to do it one way or another. It's long-term, so you could start right away or delay. Then almost every hand went up. And I think what these people have learned to do so well has lessons for people in organizations who are doing work where they have a lot of autonomy. Yeah. I mean, how do you get into your workday without distracting off into doing email, which is a comfort zone. Like, yes. I'm just doing email. It seems important, but it's not really what I need to do today. Right. I need to be getting down to write that proposal or exactly. that chapter of that book mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm one of those people that I can sit at my desk for hours and not move and stay on point. And then I have to pry myself away from the desk and say, no, no, go take that hike now. Because mm. if you don't do it now, you're going to be exhausted at six. Yeah. And you won't be able to move. So I I will force a a long break in the middle of the day, and then I can come back to it. I want to go over one more connection, which is connection to purpose. People that felt some connection to a bigger reason for doing what they were doing, they could see that connection, were able to feel more vital in this kind of work. So, for example, this one guy, he was a consultant to songwriters. He helped (laughs) them write their songs and publish their songs. And he said, you know, Ronald Reagan said, America is a song culture. And I like to think I play a role in that. So it's the same work, but he sees it in this bigger canvas. And by seeing it in that bigger canvas, it elevates his sense of self more. Which we all need. Which we all need. We we are purpose-driven. And people working on their own need it especially. Yeah. Thank you, Sue, for joining me on the show. To learn more about the work of Sue Ashford and thriving in the new world of work, please visit her at the University of Michigan's website and enter S. Ashford on the search bar. And you can find her on Twitter at Sue Ashford and on LinkedIn at Sue-Ashford. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. 
welcome back to today's show. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about raising the happiness bar and forging financial freedom for the world's workers in today's economy. My next guest is Atch Advaryu, and this episode was recorded at the Positive Business Conference at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business, where industry leaders gather to promote well-being and performance. To learn more, visit PositiveBusinessConference.com. Let's rejoin that conversation. My guest today is Ach Advaryu, and he is an economist whose research focuses on alleviating barriers to economic opportunity in low-income country contexts. He often works with large firms to design and evaluate worker well-being programs that have the potential to improve workers' lives as well as improve business outcomes for firms. He has a PhD in economics from Yale and was on the faculty at Yale before joining the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business in 2013. Thanks so much for joining me, Ach. Well, glad to be here. Oh, and you are giving a presentation um, entitled Well-Being and Our World. And I'd love for you to talk about the importance of well-being for all, the equality Absolutely. of well-being. Absolutely. So, so my work as a development economist focuses on the, the lowest strata of society in terms of income. Um, so we you know, work with the poorest workers uh, in the world. What we came to realize was that the well-being of individuals in general is more and more in low-income countries, but around the world really tied to how these workers are treated in the workplace, right? So most workers um, who work in large firms in low-income contexts um, have really, really hard lives, both yes. at home as well as um, in their work environments. So how can making their lives a little bit easier um, in specific ways generate changes for their own well-being, for their happiness, for their physical health, emotional and mental health, um, for the well-being of their families and communities, and then how does that translate into better business outcomes for the firms that they work in? That's the basic question that I try to ask in my research. And in terms of selling companies at the corporate level on the value of investing in sort of the lower level employee, yeah. what has to go on besides proving that the ROI is going to go up? That's right. So, <laughs> so that's a great question. Uh, so first, I think there's the idea that a lot of companies, if you look around the world, do have a focus or at least a stated focus on the sustainability and the well-being of their workforce. Um, now the question becomes, you know, you're gonna get these outliers who really love their workers and do great things for them and invest in them. But across the broad swath of uh, industry across the world, you're really only gonna convince employers to do things for their workers if you convince them that it's gonna affect their own bottom line. That's the sort of hard-nosed, cynical economist point of view. So what we try to do is to tie the impacts of worker well-being interventions into their impacts on business outcomes. So I think a sort of necessary condition we feel for the sort of scaling uh, of programs at the wide scale is going to be that the program actually generates ROI for uh, the firm. Now, I think as you're mentioning, that's not enough. Um, I think it takes a lot more to convince firms to adopt. And those are some of those that the, I call it the science of scale. Those are some of the important questions that we're trying to tackle through my own work in the academic sphere as well as my work uh, with my nonprofit. Uh, we take proven innovations and we try to scale them by changing the incentives that managers have to adopt, by conveying information to the right 
parts of the managerial hierarchy, and by just changing the conversation more broadly about the importance of well-being interventions. And when we talk about the kinds of interventions that you are encouraging, they're not really terribly complicated, are they? No, no, not, often they're not. Um, so it's often just about realizing a missing, missing link. Uh, so, you know, there's lots of reason to believe, for example, that the health of a worker, the physical or, you know, emotional health of a worker is going to be tied into their productivity, right? That seems like a very reasonable hypothesis. Yeah. But now how do you go from that to getting a big employer to invest in workers' health um, in a context where there's not a lot of extra profit margin to go around, right? A lot of these large-scale firms operate at very slim margins. Right. How are you going to convince that firm to go and give, you know, an extra bit of that margin back to its workers? Well, the way that we think about this is that we need an evidence base, right? We might know sort of intuitively that, um, for example, if you're sick all the time, you may not show up to work, and that might influence your productivity, your team's productivity, and how long you stay on at the firm. But what does that cost to the firm for you to be sick, right? Yeah. What are the hard numbers? How does that translate into the firm's bottom line, their profits? And so that's the sort of evidence base that we're trying to provide and thereby kind of make that missing link as you know, uh, clearly as possible for firms. So what are some kinds of interventions? And in, like one pops into my mind as you're describing that, you have an employee that is sick all the time or a group of employees can it be something as simple as offering fresh juices at break to That's give right. them something that boosts their immune systems? Yeah, yeah. So just on the topic of health, I'm working on two interventions, one related to physical health and one related to mental health. So the one related to physical health is tackling anemia in a worker population of women in low-income contexts. We're doing garment manufacturing in India. And so there, the rate of anemic women in India is very, very high, particularly in low-income populations. And so when we went into, this, into these factories that we're working in and we tested everybody for their hemoglobin levels, we found that a staggering fraction of them, something like 40%, were either mildly, moderately, or severely anemic by WHO standards. Wow. And so we actually designed an intervention where we're basically providing iron supplementation as well as other sort of informational changes about dietary requirements related to iron to targeted you know, members of that anemic population. And we're tracking out the impacts that that has on productivity in the workplace. It makes perfect sense. And the supplementation, offering the supplementation through the work firm, exactly. is showing the employee that the firm cares. Yes, they care about the bottom line, but, it, but it is integrated. You know, right, it, works, right. it works together. It, I think that's right. So it, I think it generates the, the, the potential for some reciprocity or the, the feeling that workers are appreciated, that they might then sort of feedback into their own work and their own sort of purpose at the firm. It also makes things easier, just logistically, because it turns out that a lot of interventions, if you deliver them in the workplace, it's much easier to do that than telling a worker to go to a free or subsidized clinic outside the workplace when she doesn't have time, she's got to get home to her kids, yeah. got to cook dinner, all that stuff. So this kind of makes it you know, low cost and also potentially generates that reciprocity that we would like to, we'd like to leverage. The other intervention that you're working on, you mentioned, is mental health. That's right. In what country? That's also in India. A lot of my work uh, revolves around uh, low-income workers in India. And so what we're doing there is the, the rates of anxiety and depression uh, spectrum disorders are very, very high in low-income populations in India. And when you consider that 
a lot of the workers who are coming into uh, industrial jobs, particularly women, are starting formal sector work for the first time. They're moving to cities for the first time in their lives. Mm-hmm. They're seeing skyscrapers for the first time in their lives. This is just a massive change in their life. And so to go from a village uh, to that environment where you're working nine to five for the first time um, has you know, potentially sort of life-changing impacts on you, and you need a sort of guide through that. So the program that we designed combines um, what we call a, a buddy, which is basically someone from your area who's migrated to the city before you and is kind of used to that migration process, has lots to say about the experience and can share that with the sort of junior buddy with a uh, cognitive behavioral therapy intervention. So this is basically low-cost, light-touch mental exercises that you can do that have been demonstrated in a lot of settings to have uh, beneficial impacts on mental health. So we feel that combining this kind of friendship or just tapping you into the right network of people who kind of have your same experiences, as well as giving you some of the tools that you need to really parse through all the various yeah. you know, huge mental changes that are going on in your life, um, might result in uh, beneficial impacts in terms of your mental well-being that then are going to translate into business outcomes. It's interesting. What I hear you saying is that it's minimizing isolation, that through sort right. of pe- exactly. peer mentorship and these cognitive behavioral interventions, that they are making one feel less alone. Absolutely. Which makes me think of some research that Robert Biswas Diener did. I don't know if you know yeah, his no, work. No, no. He's a positive psychologist. He's mm-hmm. Ed Diener's son. Okay. And he was researching construction workers in India that had come from the small villages. And they were being housed in apartments. Well, they were not used to living in apartments and they sure. were really depressed. You know, they, you know, the employer thought, oh, we're giving them accommodation. This is a good thing. We're trying to help them. And what he witnessed as these groups of construction workers would rather sleep in the streets right. together because they could sit and talk at night and sort of be very clannish or tribal, and they felt more connected and and more happy. That's fascinating. I thought that was pretty fascinating. His research he did about 15 years ago. No, that's that's absolutely, I mean, so this just speaks to the idea that, that one, the transition is just momentous, and so it's it's incredible what, what, you know, these workers go through to to actually find formal employment in the city. Um, The second thing is, uh, I think, you know, people's happiness is very context-specific. Um, and I heard the same anecdotes coming out of uh, female garment workers that we've worked Similar, with. Similar, right? Who are coming from villages who said, hey, I sleep outside every night. I have, you know, the whole the, the whole sky is my sort of like ceiling, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I'm going from that to a tiny little bedroom. Um, so it is a huge, dramatic change. And the employer thinking that they're doing a good job to accommodate and it's a miss. Right. Exactly. That's right. And I think that's what speaks to the importance of, of that link that we're trying to create, that basically, you know, the general idea that, say, mental health is tied into productivity, nobody's going to dispute that. I think that's, you know, seems very intuitive. But actually generating the types of interventions that will create improvements in mental health that then result in productivity changes um, that's the, the key sort of nitty-gritty work that needs to be done to basically generate widespread adoption and kind of and wellness. change in the conversation. Yeah, And, you know, simple things like sleep hygiene, right? People, they, right. They, they arrive to the city from a rural environment, their sleep might be disrupted, Absolutely. which may cause Absolutely. depression. Yeah, yeah. I have a colleague who 
is actually working with us on this loneliness uh, study with migrants, um, who's done some other work uh, related to, to, to sleep deficiency and productivity and finding really clear results there that um, if you improve the sleep conditions for people who are living in city environments where it's super noisy and there's yeah. lots of pollution and there's lots of different factors that are making their sleep not that great, if you change that uh, in even small ways, you can generate pretty marked uh, remarkable changes in productivity. So uh, I absolutely agree that these tiny changes sometimes actually pay off. Or the factory yeah. worker who is kept inside and gets no daylight and they become vitamin D deficient. That's right. You know, and their immune system suffers from lack of vitamin C, right. no exposure to nature whatsoever. And that tiny little intervention of giving them a few minutes outside mm -hmm, mm -hmm. remarkably improves mood and performance. Right, right. No, absolutely. That's right. So there's a million, you know, little things we might imagine like that contribute to make a sort of generally more holistically better workplace environment. So can we kind of add these pieces of evidence up and say, look, here's the package of stuff that you really need in this context. And then how is it deployed within the, the company? Yeah. So, so the way that we generally work on this stuff is you know, coming from the academic background, we want the most rigorous evidence possible. The way we deliver that is usually by structuring randomized controlled trials in real-world factory environments. So the idea is if we have an intervention, first we kind of figure out what the right intervention within a particular class of things to do is. So, for example, with this uh, cognitive behavioral therapy work that we're doing um, and pairing up buddies with each other, we designed a curriculum that based on kind of a human-centered design approach where we went and asked workers about what they want from their friends and what they would like in terms of structured interaction. Um, so, you know, sourcing that from the ground up, um, we developed a program. We think this is a good potential solution. Now we have to test it, so we essentially engage with several factories. We randomize people into the program on a trial basis, and we offer them the program. They go through the program, and we track a variety of different outcomes that relate both to their well-being as well as using administrative data from the firm to their productivity yeah. and workplace outcomes. And then we can evaluate differences between people who were treated and people who were, were not treated as part of the trial. Do you do any research in the States, like with migrant workers or the agricultural community? No. So currently we're focusing on low-income contexts, you know, uh, sort of quite heavily working in India, surrounding countries. We're starting some work in Latin America because Latin American workers and large firms face very similar issues. But these problems are universal, essentially. Yeah. I mean, if you look as close as uh, the Detroit area to, you know, the auto uh, workers and, and factory workers that are um, making the majority of the U.S.'s uh, automobiles, uh, you know, you see a lot of the same problems. Uh, uh, patterns and problems uh, that you do in India. And so how do we take some of those lessons and convert them into, you know, an, an auto plant in Dearborn? Uh, that's something that we're sort of exploring here at the University of Michigan. Um, Although an auto worker in Dearborn is making significantly more absolutely. than a factory worker in India. That's right. Or a picker in, in a field in California. That's right. That's right. So the, <laughs> sometimes the income differences are pretty uh Dramatic. Um, although I will say, you know, some of the, some of the same problems around the the fundamental labor market issues that workers face are are kind of the same. So, for example, in the U.S., if you look at fast food restaurants, um, the rate of worker turnover is 
you know, incredibly high. It's between 50 and 100% annually, depending on the type of restaurant you go to. Um, so, you know, these restaurants are, are these, these chains are kind of turning over their workers, you know, the entirety of their workforce per year, effectively. How expensive is that? It's incredibly expensive wow. for the firm. Yeah. It's also, as you might imagine, incredibly sort of an uncertain environment for the worker. So yes. if, if I'm not sure where I'm going to be from day to day and I don't know who my employer is and, you know, there's the cost of looking for work in between, um, that just makes for a bad equilibrium. So how can we change that a little bit? Yeah, I'm just imagining for the worker the, the stress level of not knowing, am Incredibly I going to be stressful. fired? Am I going to be let go? Do I have a job? Exactly. Am I going to be able to feed my family? Right, right, exactly. You know, it goes back to those basic needs that if you're just worried about securing your basic needs, happiness is not really figuring into the equation. That's right, that's right. Quality um, of life is not really even figuring into the equation. Sustaining life is, right. the, is the goal. Yeah, and if you, I mean, as we're talking about mental health here, there's a very clear poverty trap between mental health and poverty or uncertainty of income. So when you're uncertain about your income, like you said, you have you have incredible stress levels, you're worried about you know, who's going to put food on the table the next day, that actually ends up taking up a large part of your cognitive space and cognitive ability. And so that doesn't leave very much room for doing productive things. Yeah. In an ideal world, what would the, an ideal corporation look like or their program look like to serve this population? That's a great question. So I think there's a lot of things that firms can do, and obviously, as We've been discussing what specific programs are recommended for a particular context are going to vary, right, based on the worker population, based on what kind of work the firm does, and what the specific problems are. So I won't comment on specifics, but I'll say the ideal is essentially a firm that understands at every level of the hierarchy that investing in low-income workers, but just generally all workers, has dividends them, right? So that basically the incentives are fully aligned to invest in your workforce. Just like if a machine was broken on your factory floor, you're not just going to let it sit there and be broken, you're going to find the right parts and fix it. Well, you can think of workers the same way. If, if we find something that's broken about our workers, if we find something that is you know, uh, hurting them or that is constraining them from being their best selves, then let's figure out how to fix that. And that's going to generate uh, rewards for the firm as well. So I would say, you know, if you buy into that concept, then I think uh, you come closer to realizing that ideal. And then how exactly you do that and which programs you use depends heavily on the context. But going back to what the programs are, in, yeah. in essence, these are all low-cost interventions. That's right. A lot of them yeah. end up being quite low cost. So it depends, again, you know, context specific. But if you look at a intervention that we, um, another one of the things we're doing in India and very interested in is looking at worker and management communication. So the basic idea that workers should be able to communicate up the hierarchy to give suggestions, to point out flaws in the system, to communicate grievances, to talk about abuse. You know, we, we We've been hearing a lot about the Me Too movement. One key feature mm. of that is the ability for a worker to communicate to somebody, hey, I'm you know, not happy here and there's some abuse going on, etc. So how do we actually generate that kind of system? Because even if you have the best boss in the world, if it's not easy to talk to him or her, then you, know, you don't enable that communication to flow naturally. So um, in, the, in the context where we're working, um, we're designing a tool that sort of 
comprehensive in terms of the ways that you can communicate with your workers. So through SMS or text message, through an app, as well as through voice recognition software that lets you communicate um, digitally into uh, a system that sends your comments into a dashboard so that you can communicate directly with someone in HR if you have a problem, if you have a grievance, etc. And they can communicate with you, but you can leave that anonymous if you would like. I was going to ask you about the anonymity. Absolutely. That's key because, yes. as you might imagine, you, you people you know, are fearful. People are very scared, yeah. uh, particularly in consequences where you're looking at, in, in circumstances where you're looking at you know, very low income or you know, workers who have generally not been given power in society. Um, they, you know, they are very beholden to the power structure and they find it very difficult to, to communicate something when they feel that there might be retribution. Um, and so guaranteeing anonymity is one key feature um, of the technology. But we're also realizing that it's not just about the technology, it's, it's also about incentives um, to do the right thing. So, you know, if you, you might have the, the prettiest, you know, uh, most functional app in the world, but if I communicate a grievance through that app and you as my employer do nothing to solve it, um, then that's not helping us, right? Right, that's only the vehicle. That's it's, right. It's not the solution. Exactly. So as with many things, technology alone is never the solution. It's always... That and understanding what the incentives are at every level, you know, of the, uh, at every stakeholder and, and kind of aligning those incentives as best as possible. In Indian society or Indian corporate society today, um, do you find in your research that the um, management is valuing the well-being of the worker? Or are you having to do a hard sell on that? You know, uh, with you know, at the fear of generalizing, I would say it's more the latter. So you know, it's it's generally a, a hard sell that involves thinking about ROI, frankly. Yeah. And that's what you know uh, you'll see around the world. That you know, especially in uh, industries that have very slim profit margins, if you only have one or two percent to spare, um, you know, then it's a really hard sell, sure. and you have to make sure that what you're doing or what you're investing comes back to you. And so, and honestly, we, we find that that's much better than twisting arms anyway, right? Um, you know, there's only so much that you can do with a stick. At some point, you got to use the carrot, yes, too. Yes. Um, so, so what we try to do in all of our scale-up activity is lay out the business case to the right layers of management to basically say, look, you know, in addition to being viewed as a good employer and, you know, sort of being good people, this will actually generate business benefits, and here's how much you can expect. I was watching a piece, I can't remember if it was on CNN or MSNBC or one of the channels about, I think it was factory workers in India that had vision issues, mm -hmm. and they didn't realize how visually impaired a lot of the Absolutely. workers were. Absolutely. And then I think it was a nonprofit that had come in and had given eyeglasses mm -hmm. to most of the employees, because right. most of them needed it, and how productivity scaled off the charts as a result. Yeah, it's quite incredible. So there is some work that I'm aware of published a few years ago with tea pickers that did this where they, just corrective that vision might, intervention. That might have been it, yeah, not that factory been it. tea pickers. So we're actually working with that same group in garment factories now because I've, as you can imagine, doing tiny little stitches yeah. or you know putting buttons on a shirt it's the same it takes thing. very very fine you know a vision uh, activity and if you don't you know if you if you have uh, uh, problems with vision, then you're going to find it much harder to do that work. Um, and uh, that might lead to 
other things like uh, headaches and back pain and um, other types of physical problems that then hamper your productivity further. So we're actually, um, you know, working with this group to come in and deliver um, free or subsidized glasses um, for basically very common vision problems that people can pick up right after they get diagnosed with a vision Amazing. problem. And the really interesting thing I think about this from the perspective of an economist, because I'm not an ophthalmologist right. and I know very little <laughs> about uh, vision correction, um, is the behavioral piece because it's not just about giving people these glasses, but you know, as you know, I see that you've got your glasses up on your, uh, on yeah. your head at the moment. It, it's sometimes very hard to get people to actually keep their glasses on. And if you've never had glasses before, you know, if, if you've ever given, say, like a toddler who needs vision correction some glasses, it's very hard to keep those things on. Yes. Um, and you know, similarly, if you've gone through life just having some vision issues, but basically not wearing glasses, it feels very foreign to do that. So how do we change that very fundamental, very kind of intimate behavior um, in a way that actually generates take yeah. um, And so that's the sort of behavioral question, I think, that, that warrants an economist like me being on that study, um, is how do we actually keep those glasses on? Well, I mean, in the images that were shown in this piece yes. were, were women in particular that were like, oh, my goodness, I never knew it looked like this. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. I never thought I could see this clearly. And the yeah. elevation of mood and attitude, which is the psychological component yeah. as a result of this fairly They're all simple, linked up. Yeah, exactly. all. And so this, this sort of workplace well-being and wholeness and yeah. wellness is integrally tied to the, the cycle. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think that's one of the key channels through which a lot of our interventions operate. We're going to take that break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Ach Advaryu. To learn more, please visit his website at www.achadvaryu.com and www.goodbusinesslab.org. And on Twitter at Ach Advaryu. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Continuing the conversation with my guest, Ach Advaryu. This was recorded at the Positive Business Conference at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business, where industry leaders gather to promote greater well-being and performance. Um, we're talking about raising the happiness bar and forging financial freedom for the world's workers in today's economy. Let's get back to that discussion. 
So, Aj, tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing over at the Good Business Lab. Sure. So, you know, we've been talking about worker well-being and how it ties into better business outcomes. So, what we do at the Good Business Lab is essentially all the nitty-gritty that we need to make that link more salient. Find the evidence base that actually generates interventions that succeed at improving worker well-being while also having that translate into business outcomes that that improve. And then, when we find those interventions, scaling that uh, work from a pilot setting that we you know use for testing to a, a wider scale where we can have many firms and many millions of uh, workers being affected. So I want to ask you a kind of a funny question, but I think you'll get where I'm coming from. I was watching Chasing Life the other night with Sanjay Gupta, and he was yes. focusing on the Prime Minister of India's new initiative to return back to Ayurvedic medicine and yoga is right. part of really adopted as a as a nationwide right a nationalistic yes yeah. a nationalistic initiative. Mm-hmm. Really, we're not talking about anything that is more expensive here either. Right, That's I mean it's right. similar to really what you're saying, like utilizing resources that are there that would be easily embraced or adapted by people. Absolutely, and I mean, I'm just going to ask you about yoga. Where does yoga fit in this environment, if at all? Yeah. So I once visited uh, an organization called SEVA, the Self-Employed Women's Association, who also works in India. And I had the most wonderful experience there. They invited me. They have a yoga session every morning for anyone who would like to come. Um, And wonderful. I think it was like 6.30 a.m., you know, yoga session. Just set the right tone for the day. I can completely see how doing that in a structured way at a wider scale you know, generates benefits. Um, and I think, you know, something that a lot of wellness initiatives kind of focus on, if you look, for example, at large universities here in the U.S., Michigan has uh, an initiative that does a whole bunch of really interesting stuff called M Healthy. Um, and part of that wellness initiative, you know, is yoga classes that are subsidized or free for um, the faculty and staff and other members of the um, University of Michigan population. So you often see this as part of wellness programs. Um, what we would do at the Good Business Lab is say, this sounds like a fantastic category of an intervention. You know, let's see what actual measurable benefits you can actually accrue by providing that service in a particular setting and then match that up to data on how well these individuals are doing in their sort of you know, productive lives. Yeah, because I think bringing a yoga teacher to a, a factory in India is probably not very expensive. Right. Yeah. And the return on that in terms of the health and well-being Absolutely. and mental health also, physical and mental health That's of right. the employees would scale up. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of discussion now here in the U.S. about mindfulness uh, yes. tr- and mindfulness training, um, which factors very, much, very heavily into a lot of yoga practice. Um and, you know, indeed, is if you look at the cognitive behavioral therapy stuff we were talking about uh, previously, you know, mindfulness is very, very linked into there. And uh, the mental exercises that you end up doing as this light touch um, ment- uh, cognitive behavioral therapy often involve mindfulness, often involve remembering things that are good about your life and yes. taking some time out to sort of zoom out from your day-to-day stressors. And that ends up having a measurable impact that's been demonstrated um, time and time again in that literature in in the academic world. So um, I would not doubt uh, for a second that yoga has some salubrious benefits. One area that I'm really excited that we're working on um, 
in the Good Business Lab uh, relates to the broader kind of Me Too movement and its kind of uh, uh, you know impacts across the world. But in particular, you know, starting in the U.S., I think you're starting to see some of this also crop up in India. It has still to make its way to a lot of countries. Um, but really, the, the the basic idea here is very much related to the basic hypothesis that um, that we uh, evaluate over and over again in various interventions in the Good Business Lab, which is basically that if you have managers that treat employees poorly, right, and that might mean various things, um, but if your supervisor you know, treats you poorly on a daily basis, if you don't like interacting with that person, if you come to work afraid or uncertain in some way about how that interaction is going to go, then you're obviously going to be less productive. Yeah. You're going to be less happy being at that firm. You're going to be more likely to leave. There's that old adage that says that, you know, you don't quit your job, you quit your boss. Um, and I think that that's very, very true. And so there's a clear link here between sort of the well-being of frontline workers, particularly women, um, and the conduct and the kind of expectations that are set um, and the skills that managers have to deal with um, interpersonal relationships and communication. Um, and so that's one area that I've, that I've focused on uh, over the last couple of years at, at Good Business Lab and in my own research is basically structuring programs that deliver these skills in a palatable way to male supervisors. That was my next question yeah. about people in supervisory roles, most likely males, who may have little to no training in That's emotional right. and social intelligence or communication skills. Yeah. Yeah. They only know one way. Exactly. You know, a heavy-handed way. That's or, right. And I think that you know, there are certain norms around this that, yes, that get very norm. deeply inculcated. Exactly. Yeah. We asked, um, so, so we, we've designed a variety of different programs that, that target uh, female uh, workers that also target male supervisors. Turns out that if you talk to these supervisors, one, it's all it's about tools. So there's there's often very little toolkit there to be right. able to say, you know, okay, um, my my employee is flustered or is tired today or is you know upset about something. How do I deal with that? The only way that they know to deal with it is to yell at them and tell them to get in line and yeah. move past it. So how do we give supervisors the right tools to handle that communication? But then it also went deeper than that. It's basically the tools to handle their own stress as well. Because, you know, the stress kind of comes downstream, yeah. right, from, from uh, layers of the hierarchy above them. And so if I'm telling you as the, you know, guy in charge of the factory that you're going to have to deliver 300 units by the end of the day, then you're going to be very stressed out and you're going to take that stress out of yes. your workers. How do you actually recognize that this is making me stressed. How should I regulate this stress? How should I deal with it and put it in a part of my brain that lets me then interact with my employees in a way that doesn't sort of filter that stress through? So giving that toolkit is incredibly important because it lets worker, it lets the manager see, hey, you know, this is the product of stress. When I'm, when I'm yelling at my employees, it's not that I'm upset with them. It's I'm upset that I am stressed and I'm dealing with the situation. So I think that those were the, the main you know features of the training that we delivered. But actually, it is about sort of broader cultural change in a way because when we talked to women who are going through this, you know, so their, their supervisors were going through this program, and we were talking to them in the middle of the program to sort of get anecdotally some evidence on, you know, how is it going? You know, what are your supervisors doing, right or wrong, et cetera? 
And then we, of course, surveyed them on this stuff very rigorously afterward. <laughs> but when we talked to them about this, one interesting thing we heard in the beginning of the program was, um, you know, my supervisor, it's weird. He, it's like he's given up. He's stopped yelling at us. And, and I feel like he doesn't want us to be productive. So the, the, wow. the sort of, you know, <laughs> the idea that if, if you're not yelling at your employee, you don't um, care. You don't care. You're just, you know, thrown in the towel or you're not being as productive as you could um, is so inculcated in this environment that even the sort of the victim, you know, here in this setting is who like, doesn't I like it, who doesn't like but it, but doubts it when it goes away. Exactly. That's right. And that took some time to That's change. That's interesting. Yeah. And if you look at, you know, people's perceptions, uh, this is one of the reasons culturally well, why there are very few women supervisors in this setting is because... If you look at, you know, when we ask women workers whether women could be supervisors, because actually it turns out in the setting that we're doing this study in, 80% of the frontline workers are women, and 95% of the supervisors are men. (laughs) So there's basically no career ladder there. Um, So we asked them, you know, what's preventing people from graduating up and becoming supervisors? And they said, you know, a woman's too soft and, and... uh, you know, she wouldn't be able to yell at workers and really get production done in the way that a man can. Um, and so that basic perception that you need to be managing a certain way to actually get work done is what needs to be broken in yes. that setting. And so that's what we're trying to do by inculcating this program and by measuring its consequences and communicating those impacts back to workers. Um, it's my understanding that India is one of the fastest growing middle class economies in the world. That's correct. So yeah. things are changing as a result of that. I mean, what mm-hmm. you're talking about is sort of the frontline worker, as you refer to it, but yes. how about in in other aspects of commerce within India? Is yeah. the role for women changing? Are they able to take on supervisory roles? Yeah, absolutely. So it's really sort of industry dependent, obviously. But if you look across the Indian economy, I would say there is still very much the sense that certain sectors are heavily gendered towards men and certain sectors towards women. So the garment sector, which I work in a lot, has lots of low-income frontline workers who are women. Yes. But uh, that's more the kind of exception than the rule. Most sectors, I would say, are much more gendered towards men, particularly in higher-up roles. So I haven't seen the sort of statistics on, as you move up the managerial hierarchy, how does the percentage of men decline, but um, I think it's fairly rapid. Uh, so it's, it's still the case that in most sectors in India, um, I would conjecture that it's heavily, you know, the tops of the hierarchies are heavily dominated by men. Yeah. And I'm thinking also like of call centers, you know, so yeah. people who are, are moving up the ladder That's right. in, That's in right. their station slightly, but it's still a very much a frontline job mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in what's going on there. Yeah, no, you're absolutely seeing, you know, over time and particularly in urban settings, I would say that this is, you know, tends to be different than in more traditional, more sort of you know, uh, settings like in rural India where you're much more tied to custom um, and social norm. Uh, in, ur- in urban settings, I think you're seeing um, a much more rapid progression of women up the hierarchy. What's interesting, I-, I had this flash image of my mind. I spent a bit of time in India a few years ago, okay. and it was in rural India. It was in Rajasthan. I remember I seeing all these construction workers. They were all women. Yeah. The guys were sitting there smoking cigarettes, and the women were schlepping yeah. the stuff. I know. It's, and I was like, what? That's a really fast. Yeah, so th- th- you're absolutely right. And this is actually true across, uh, <laughs> I mean, if you look at the macro trends as well, um, construction is actually one of the, the fastest growing industries for women. In India. In India. Yes. That's 
fascinating. Yeah. And what is the why? That's or, a great question. I, you know, someone should study that for sure. Because there's uh, heavy lifting involved. Absolutely. I mean, this yeah. is there's these and these are it's physical labor. Physical yeah. labor. They're petite, but yet they are carrying very heavy loads right. on their heads, on That's their right. backs. And I was like, this is phenomenal. Yeah. No. So, I mean, if you look at agriculture in India, while there are certain gendered roles, both women and men participate in most parts of the agricultural process, which is obviously also highly physically intensive. Yes. And so I think the idea that, you know, that you need, you know, a man to do certain sort of uh, level of physical tasks or, you know, that men are sort of more present in those sectors is maybe less prevalent as a idea or perception in India. Well, it seems very much in that way equal opportunity. That's right. If exactly. you can work, right. you can, we'll you give can, you the work. Yeah, yeah, we'll give you the work. Exactly. I, I think that your research is fascinating and I love about what you're doing, particularly focused in India, is looking to a sector of the population that is normally underserved when we think of well-being and employee benefits and finding ways to give services that raise the overall right. uh, well-being level of the individual and the community. So, right. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate I mean, that. It's very, very inspiring. I think we're probably out of time. To learn more about the work of Ach Advaryu, please visit www.goodbusinesslab.org. You could also visit achadvaryu.com, but then I'd have to spell it out, which would confuse you <laughs> even more. But I'm sure that you can. we can find you through I Good like Business Lab. Yes, yeah, you can. .org, and on Twitter, at Ach Advaryu. And on Instagram, which I didn't cite earlier, at Ach Advaryu. Thanks for joining me again on the show, and congratulations on your talk, Well-Being and Our World. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Sue Ashford and Ach Advaryu, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. To learn more about the Positive Business Conference at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business, visit www.positivebusinessconference.com. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.